Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. The book Watchmaking by George Daniels is one of the seminal, if not the seminal, works on the topic of making a watch by one person from the raw materials from start to finish. And as you're presently in the, the midst of working on a, a watch project there, Chris, and I frequently consult this book for creating parts that are no longer available for other watches, I thought it'd be good for us to, to work our way through this book together and sort of talk things through section by section and uh, release them as as episodes. Yeah, this is something that I picked up originally for the chapter on engine turning. Uh, it was one of the few books available which had good detail and technical detail about engine turning in it, both Rose engine work and straight line work. And we'll get to that uh, quite a bit later. It's um, it's in the case making section of the book later on. And so I, I picked it up. I picked up, I think, the second edition of this book quite a while ago. And I've actually read it through a couple of times now because I I am fascinated by watchmaking and I'm I'm really glad that I did pick this up uh, and have used it for significantly more than just the engine turning section now. And uh, yeah, I think it would be interesting to discuss some of it and and talk through some of it because some of it, he does ramble a little bit with some of it and it might be nice to uh, sort of give some perspective into into bits and pieces of it and maybe uh, reorganize a few of the uh, the chapters so that they uh, they make a little bit more sense. So in this inaugural episode of this series, we'll be diving into the first chapter of the book, and we'll be focusing on the first section, which is on workshop specifications. And this is another thing you are in the midst of. You're busy developing your little watch lab or atelier there in your home. What stood out to you from, from this section as you're thinking through what your space is going to be like? A few interesting things that he talks about specifically uh, as it pertains to workshops. And some of it, I think, is maybe a little bit out of date. Some of it's uh, still appropriate. The, he, he does spend a lot of time talking about the potential layout of where the shop should be, what, you know, what uh, direction the window should be facing and things like that. And I think today a lot of that can be alleviated by the good quality lighting that we have available to us. Uh, with some of the quality LED lights that are available, you can get exactly the color temperature that you want and you can get the uh, the intensity that you want very easily without worrying too much about which direction your windows are pointing. Uh, and I can understand 50, 60 years ago that uh, that would have been a significant uh, consideration. But I think today his thoughts on the lighting is something that's it's maybe a little bit um, unnecessary there's some value in thinking strategically about your window placement and whatnot this is actually something that stuck with me over the years i, I first read this chapter that has to be at least 10 maybe 12 years ago and the the north facing windows was something that stuck with me although daniels himself doesn't have his workshop set up with the north-facing light, because as he mentions in the book, 
It is often so dreary there in England that you get nice diffuse light coming through just about any window. Uh, but he does point out that a south-facing window uh, really isn't the the greatest or the most optimal because you're going to have the sun reflecting straight in your eyes, at least if you're in the northern hemisphere. This is obviously going to be flipped for anyone in the southern hemisphere. Uh, and this was made uh, quite poignant for me while, while I was uh, visiting Swatch Group's headquarters in Secaucus, New Jersey. And uh, in the, the workshops there, I, I noticed there was one bench at a south-facing window that had a series of post-it notes <laughs> placed in an arc uh, across the window. And uh, that was done by the, the watchmaker there. I actually spoke to him. He had strategically placed every post-it note so that the sun would not be shining in, uh, directly into his eyes there as he worked at his bench through the, the day. Because it's, it's a lot of strain to have the sun coming in directly at you. So in my own space at home, I do have a north-facing window at work. We have a west-facing window. And I, I find the the light, natural light is definitely a, a big perk. Um, I have worked in spaces without natural light, uh, and that's not the the nicest. It's pretty pretty grungy, and uh, it has it does have an effect on uh, your your general mood or, or demeanor through the day. There's, there's something about sunlight that is uh, invigorating. Absolutely. In my case, my studio is going in the basement and I'm fortunate because I do have quite a bit of light in the basement. Now my basement windows are south facing. So that that is a bit of a concern for me getting direct light. The combination of the trees that I have and the overhang of the house and things like that, it's not so bad. It's actually worse in the winter than it is in the summer. Uh, just because I don't have the foliage to protect me and the sun is significantly lower in the sky than it is in the summer. Uh, but the really intense light of the summer, fortunately, I don't get that through those windows. Unfortunately, most of us just don't have much of a choice. Uh, in my case, as much as I would love to uh, bulldoze my house and rebuild it so that it's uh, perhaps a little bit more ideally suited for what I want to do in the, with my studio, uh, it's just not practical to do so. A lot of us have to make do with what we have, and uh, there are ways, whether it's through post-it notes or through other means to uh, sort of protect yourself from direct sunlight through a south-facing window if that's all you happen to have access to. And uh, again, the nice thing is you can replace that with good um, good lighting and good artificial lighting. And at least here in, in Canada, where we're, we are far enough north that the light in the winter is not spectacular for uh, some of the working day. I know I certainly have enough of my working day that's in darkness or in low light that it um, I, I I could not work without artificial light in my uh, studio. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, this was certainly more of an issue decades ago. And actually, the building that was occupied by the Canadian Horological Institute, which is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, watchmaking school here in Canada. That building is still standing in downtown Toronto, and it is just across from the St. James Cathedral there on King Street, and it has massive, beautiful floor-to-ceiling windows that are all north-facing, and the light that would have been coming in there would have been ideal for the students learning there. And at that point in time, when the school was first opened, we're talking the 1890s, I was like, electricity wasn't really a thing uh so they would have 
benefited greatly from those large north-facing windows. Now, when it does come to lighting, I found that there, as I said, there are some good LED options available, and I've preferred to go with the high Kelvin LED bulb. So anything sort of from around 5,300 Kelvin up, uh, which for a lot of people seems far too harsh. It's a very, very blue light. It, it's not a very warm and pleasant light, but let's, let's put it that way. Uh, it's not, it doesn't give you the green tint that a lot of fluorescent bulbs do, uh, but it is very white and it does give you very high color accuracy when it comes to uh, the parts that you're working on. And uh, I find it easier on the eyes when I'm working in um, in a very a very white light like that. It is important if you're going to set up lights in a studio of this nature, you want to make sure that your lights are all the same color temperature. If you look at the packaging on bulbs or or any kind of of lighting these days, you tend to find a Kelvin rating for your bulbs, and you want to make sure that they are all the same. What no matter what it is that you go with, uh, you do want to make sure that they're all the same. Dig into that a little bit for me, because I'm, I'm interested to hear your reasoning or, or perspective on that. This is not something Daniels gets into in the book, and I actually try to get a range of different lights that I can use so that my eyes aren't stuck with a single color temperature uh, throughout the day. Now, when working on something, I, I do want to be aware of the, the color temperature that I am working with, particularly as we alluded to in the an earlier episode, when it comes to things like bluing your screws, your light source was going to have a, a drastic impact on just how well you're going to be able to to do that sort of thing in order to maintain color accuracy. But uh, just for my, my own eyeballs, uh, I do like to have a, a range of, of different color temperatures available to me. And that's the beautiful thing about the sun, natural sunlight is you're getting a full spectrum coming in. And if you're stuck under, say, just fluorescent bulbs all day, that can scientifically, from what I've read in various studies, take its toll. So there is a difference between full spectrum versus color temperature. You are still getting uh, a specific color temperature out of the sun when you're seeing it. Uh, And that's going to change the way that things look. So if you look at something in the early morning light versus the light at high noon versus the light at sun, you know, let's say an hour after sunset, you're going to see the same thing and very, it's going to look very different for you because the color temperature of that light is very different. And and the same thing happens with artificial lights. It's just more obvious with artificial lights when you're, when you, because you could see the two of them side by side uh, and your brain isn't doing the compensation like it does with natural sunlight. Uh, So you can, you know, so again, the the full spectrum versus the color temperature is a little bit different. Uh, One of the problems that you run into with multiple color temperatures of light, of artificial light, on at the same time is that you end up with color cast from certain lights. So the shadow that's being cast from one light versus the shadow that's being cast from another light, you're actually getting different color casts from it. And it's subtle. It's something that your eyes don't necessarily notice because, again, your brain is pretty good at fixing that problem. Um, but it is still something that's a, that's a strain on you as you're, as you're working. And it becomes very, very obvious if you ever try photographing or videoing, uh, you know, filming what you're doing. Uh, you'll see... 
that color cast jump out at you. Uh, it becomes a huge problem if you're dealing with, let's say, tungsten bulbs and uh, fluorescent bulbs. The fluorescent bulbs are very green. The tungsten bulbs are very uh, yellow. And you'll see it, it's impossible for you to try and correct the color on a photograph, for instance, if you've got both types of bulbs going. And it can be challenging as you're working as well. If you can just have one or another, then that that certainly helps. Uh, but it, it can be a problem. Like, for instance, right now I've got two different types of bulbs in my main shop. Uh, I've got some uh, fluorescent bulbs and I have some LED panels that are there. And I really need to get rid of one or the other because they are different color temperatures. And they do play tricks with me as I'm working. Uh, now, fortunately, I'm not doing anything in that shop right now that is color sensitive, uh, but it can be an issue, uh, particularly, as you say, if you're trying to do something like bluing uh, or enamel work or painting or anything like that, having a, a consistent color temperature is is an excellent idea. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on the photography, videography side of things. You don't want to be mixing your color temperatures unless it's for a specific dramatic effect that you're going for, which is very often rarely the case. Uh, it's going to prove to be a headache for you uh, in post if you're you're trying to correct those sorts of things. I would say I, I come down on the side of, of just being aware that there are different color temperatures out there. And I will actually often, I shouldn't say often, I will from time to time actually play to different color temperatures off one another when I'm doing some measurements or trying to essentially just gauge the definitive shape of, of an object that I'm, I'm working on. Um, so I would say as long as you're aware of it, then it, it's not a problem. And if you you know how to eliminate it when it is a problem, then go for that. But I, I do, for the sake of my eyeballs, like to to have a, a range of, of different colors in, in my own space. But that's my own personal preference. Yeah. yeah I, I find that multiple color temperatures in a space is actually a lot harder on my eyes than uh, than a single one. And having said that, I have multiple color temperatures around the house. Uh, so our living spaces do not have 5,500 Kelvin bulbs in them. Uh, that's a pretty harsh color and not a particularly flattering color when it comes to uh, sort of a living space. Uh, so they tend to be, I think there are about 3,500 Kelvin bulbs that are in my, uh, in my living spaces. Um, and that those are more comfortable to live in. And uh, those are a little bit easier on the eyes in some ways, you know, sort of in day-to-day -day life. But when it comes to technical work, I definitely prefer a single color. And uh, I, I would be happy with if it was a warmer color as well, but I definitely prefer a, a single one. And some some lights you can get are, um, are bi-color or have adjustable color on them. So that's something you can look out for as well if you want to be able to change them around. Uh, it's worth getting a good quality one if you're going to do that so that you can, if you've got multiple lights, you can reproduce the, the color between multiple, uh, the multiple lights that are there. But you can certainly get um, lights that will do, you know, that will do colors, uh, specific colors for you. And if you are doing any sort of aesthetic work, like say picking out a dial color or a, a color for printing text onto a dial, things like that, or anodization work, uh, it's worth your while to get a light box with a range of, of color temperatures that can be 
broadcast into that box. So it's similar to what you'd find at, say, a paint store, where you'd walk up to one of these light boxes and have your, your paint chips, and you can see those paint chips under a variety of different light sources and light temperatures. And the colors look very different depending on, on the light that they're they're interacting with. Uh, so something like that, if you're into to that side of watchmaking, is absolutely worthwhile. You have a number of smart bulbs around your place as well. Do you have any of those programmed to mimic, say, natural light that the, the sun would give you over the course of a day? Uh, no, I don't. And I've, I'll be honest, the hue bulbs that I, that I have been using, I'm actually slowly replacing uh, for a couple of reasons. I'm not particularly happy with the control mechanism that they use. And I find they're also not bright enough. So instead, I've been changing to the uh, Lutron controls for the... I'm replacing my switches instead of replacing the bulbs with smart bulbs. And so I'm using the, the switches to be able to do the control. And then I'm changing out the bulbs to be whatever color it is that I want in that area. Uh, so I've got in my, my office slash uh, watchmaking studio that I'm in right now, I have very, very white bulbs. As I said, I've got 5,500 Kelvin bulbs in the overhead light. And then I also have an LED task light that's over top of the bench, which again is 5,500 Kelvin. Outside of that, you know, as I said, I'm putting normal LED bulbs into my fixtures and uh, and then controlling the fixtures using a separate, uh, separate control mechanism so that I'm separating out the two. Uh, unfortunately, I just, I wasn't particularly impressed with the overall use and experience with the, uh, the Hue stuff. It is kind of nice to be able to change the colors, but they tend to be focused more on being able to change, for, let's say, instead of going for, uh, you know, various color temperatures of white light. Uh, they're saying, well, if you want to change it to green or, you know, you want to change it to like an emerald green, or if you want to change it to a, uh, a bright red or something like that, then you can do that. And that's more of where those bulbs are focused at. Certainly not something I would recommend using for a shop space or a studio space. Definitely not. Well, perhaps a, a, a studio in the more DJ sense. <laughs> yeah, they're not fast enough. They don't respond fast enough for that, unfortunately. That's something that Daniels does focus on a lot in this chapter when he's discussing the workshop is making sure that it is a comfortable and safe place to work. Uh, so he does spend time talking about making sure that it is well laid out, uh, that it is clean, both things that I'm desperately trying to work on myself, and that it is comfortable to work in. Because as he mentions, uh, watchmakers are often working in a small area for very long periods of time. And it is important that you have a space that you can do that in comfortably. Yeah, the, the way he summed it up was that the space should be bright, easy to clean, and that it would have all facilities conveniently at hand. Uh, that, I very much agree with that summary. And he also delves in a, a little bit into flow. Uh, he doesn't quite call it that outright, the way that... Uh, Mihai Chiksen, Mihai Wood, but he he is essentially sculpting for himself a, a space that is very conducive to dropping into a, a state of flow where you can just lose yourself in the work and, and continue on working comfortably for many hours. And there are some very tangible intangibles almost that are, are worthwhile considering in this respect that he touches on 
too, because there are optimal working conditions. If you are working in a space that is too hot, you are going to find that you're lethargic and and it will be more difficult to continue to work on well. If it's to the point of sweating, that's not going to be good for the metal parts that uh, you may be working with, particularly if you've got sweat literally dropping off your brow. Uh, But on the opposite end of the spectrum, if it's too cold, uh, you're going to have a, a hard time working, particularly if it's so cold that you are literally shivering. So having that optimal temperature in your workspace is important. I have had the misfortune of working in spaces that were too hot, up around 28 to 32 degrees Celsius in the summer, and it's very difficult to focus as a watchmaker when the temperature mm-hmm. is up in that range. That was not a good setup. That would, would not advise that, unless you live somewhere tropical, and that's just what you're used to. Yeah, that's something that I've I've had to give a lot of consideration to in my own studio space. I'm I'm constantly fighting temperature in my shop spaces. Uh so my current shop space is uh not being heated efficiently. And so in the winter, I have to make sure that I get the temperature in the shop up to up to something comfortable. In my case I keep that that shop at about 20 degrees. But then I'm also moving around a lot in it. It's it's not um it's not someplace that I'm just sitting down in one place for hours on end. Uh, but the problem I run into there is making sure that all the equipment in the studio is, or in the shop is at a comfortable temperature. Uh, it needs to equalize to temperature so that I have uh, few problems when it comes to the lubrication. If the, the machine is too cold, then the lubricants aren't going to be flowing properly. And therefore, they're not going to to protect the parts properly. And then also, as the temperature changes, things like a lathe or a mill will actually shift and you'll start having changes in the dimension and shape of the machine itself. And so temperature can start to affect accuracy of machines and equipment. So it's something that's important to, to consider. In my my new studio space in the basement, I am going to be working with a heated floor. So I'm using a radiant floor heating system. And I I know that's difficult to retrofit into all spaces, but it's also possible to do radiant heating from the ceiling as well. And I highly recommend radiant heating as opposed to forced air heating. There are a lot of advantages to radiant heating, uh, not least of which is the, the reduction of the contaminants flying around your your space and in the case of a watchmaking space that that, um, forced air heating can bring with it uh, a number of things that you don't want from other parts of the building so if you can avoid forced air heating in a in a studio space like this it's certainly worthwhile yeah you bring up a great point there with the consistent temperature when machining Uh, this is so important that for really high-end watchmaking machines that are manufacturing essentially 24-7. Firms like Pressitram will have the temperature very tightly controlled within the, the housing of the CNC machine so that they are able to machine components down to very tight tolerances on the, the micron scale. Uh, because if you have any sort of swing in temperature, then it is going to affect not only the the machine, but also the the metal you're working with. Another thing you have to keep in mind too, of course, when machining is that machining creates heat and because of friction, and uh, that can also throw things for you uh, when you're 
working at a, a very high level of precision. Uh, so that, that is an excellent point that you bring up there as well in terms of keeping a, a constant temperature in a space. Yeah, in the case of CNC machines, if you're dealing with high precision machines like that, uh, particularly lathes that are running off large numbers of parts, if they haven't been using a machine for a while, let's say uh, it hasn't been in operation for a day uh, or even 12 hours, they'll run a multi-hour job on the machine, which isn't actually cutting anything. It's just running the spindle uh, because that the motion of the spindle is enough to generate heat. And so they, they want to equalize the machine temperature before they start machining actual parts. If they just started machining parts initially with when the machine is cold, they're going to be out of tolerance and they're they're not going to pass QC. So they, you'll see that they often have warm-up cycles basically to run on these machines so that they can increase the accuracy and more importantly, increase the consistency. The machines are still accurate even when they're cold, uh, but they're going to become inconsistent because as the temperature changes, the measurements that they're getting are, are going to change. So it's it's less you know it's it's more about that consistency than it is about the um, the accuracy per se, uh, because it, if you have a machine which is cutting consistently, then you can dial it in perfectly to the to the accuracy that you want. Uh, if the machine is not cutting consistently, then no matter what you do, you're never going to be able to to get that accuracy that you want. And a radiant floor is something that I want to do for my own little shop here at home eventually once I get it at some point and, and redo it. Um, I also want to install a radiant floor here just uh, for comfort because uh, I, I do find the, the floor can get quite cold, particularly in the winter. A uh, radiant floor would completely eliminate that. Uh, so it is definitely something I'm on board there with. Now, flooring is another area that Daniel spends quite a bit of time on. And I have had the opportunity now to design three different watchmaking spaces from the, the ground up. And flooring is, is certainly a very big consideration when doing that. And I, I settled eventually on, on exactly the, the same final flooring that, that Daniels did, and that is linoleum. And the way that I've done the last couple of floors is to actually have the linoleum go up the sides of the wall. Uh, so rather than having any sort of baseboard or seam like that, that you just get a, a continuous flow in the floor and then any of the seams in the linoleum uh, are heat welded. And the color that I settled on was a, a light blue, very similar to the color that you would find on just about any of those watchmakers trays that have the bell cover on them. Uh, got a blue plastic bottom to them. It's a light blue. And the reason that the market has settled on that particular color is because of the contrast that you get with pretty much any part that you'd be using in a watch. So having that similar color on the floor as well, if a part happens to fall, it's quite easy to, to pick it out, at least significantly easier than it would be on a dark floor or a floor that's yellow for brass parts, gray for steel parts, a red floor would be terrible for trying to find a jewel. Uh, so this blue just really makes parts pop when a part lands on it. Yeah, I've I've been bouncing back and forth between what I want to do for my floor. And I had originally thought about putting in a cork floor uh, because they're very durable and they're very comfortable to move on. But then there are 
issues when as you know when it comes to finding parts and things like that tiny parts that are that are falling and hitting the floor and i'm likely going to go with linoleum like you have in your shops and i'm i'm fighting against the idea of of doing the blue floor i really don't like the look of the blue floor Fair but enough. i understand the practicality of it so <laughs> i'm i think that i'm probably going to cave and eventually end up using the blue but yeah it's it's I much prefer darker floors uh, in any workspace that I'm in, and uh, and so that's the the struggle that I've always got. But I, I suspect at the end of the day, I'm probably going to go for a blue floor, and again, the welded linoleum, just from a convenience point of view. I can empathize with that struggle. I have tried for years to try and find something more optimal. I even gone so far as to ask publicly on Twitter, you know, what do people have in in their workshops. And uh, the only other thing that comes close is that pale green that's on the bench top, and that's just it's even worse for me. The blues, the the, be- uh, yeah. the better of the two. Yeah, the pale green reminds me too much of a of an institution that mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe you're not allowed out of on a weekend. So I'm uh, I'm yeah I'm not I'm not interested in the the green. So if anyone out there has has found an even more optimal floor or floor color for a watchmaking space, uh, please do reach out. Let us know. Uh, but the best I've been able to find to to date is linoleum in that that light blue. The other thing that I hate about those light colors is that it shows just how poorly I've been sweeping the floor. So it's the other reason I'm not not a big fan of them. But of course, that's what makes it perfect for being able to find these tiny little parts that you've lost. And just that much more of an impetus to to clean. <laughs> in my day to day, I tend to sweep at least twice. So once once in the morning. And then either once around lunch or towards the end of the day. And then uh, if a part happens to fall and it's hard to find, you know, we might get a third sweep. Yeah. Now for Daniels himself, he has nothing good to say about concrete or cement floors. Uh, he says if you have a, a cement floor to overlay it with wood and then uh, some insulating material or vice versa, and then put linoleum over top of that. And while it's hard to ascertain exactly what color his floors were from the photos in the book because we don't know how they've been color corrected or or how they've aged over time he does recommend going with a light colored linoleum and and his floors appear to be a somewhat of an off-white perhaps a light gray and the other perk he says about linoleum is that it's less susceptible to have a, a tool or say an arkansas stone break if it were to hit the floor speaking from experience no matter how good your floor is, if you drop a fine-pointed pair of tweezers, they're probably going to be screwed. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have to resharpen those. Or just get a brand new pair. Because trying to straighten out and, and resharpen a, a pair of number fives to their ideal uh, can be quite tricky. Continuing on the environmental side of things, so we ended up on, on flooring from Radiant heat and and temperature. Some other things to keep in mind too are humidity, which is another really challenging one here in Canada in in the wintertime. Humidity does have a a very real impact on on how you feel and uh, how well you're able to concentrate. But not only that, as a watchmaker, if the air is too dry, then your skin on your hands will begin to dry out and flake. Uh, So if it's possible to, to outfit your space in such a way that humidity can be controlled. It's absolutely worth doing. And if you're in a situation where 
space is just simply too dry, making sure that you keep your hands well moisturized is, is also very important. We have some struggles here in Canada that uh, not necessarily everyone is going to have to deal with, fortunately. Uh, we have extreme swings of both very cold and very dry, as well as very hot and very humid. And it is challenging to try and keep all of those, um, everything balanced like that. So one of the issues I've had in my, in my shop space in the summer is just the, the amount of moisture that's there, things rusting quickly, uh, dripping sweat on top of machines, and then having the machines rust afterwards. One of the things I'm working on this year is introducing some air conditioning into my shop space uh, so that I can keep it at a more reasonable temperature and a more reasonable humidity. And nothing too crazy. It's not like I'm going to be keeping it at 16 degrees or anything like that. Trying to keep the, the shop at, a, in my case, that shop in about 20 degree temperature throughout the year, I think is going to be important. And again, try to keep the humidity at a reasonable level. In the studio that I'm building in the basement, I'm going to put air conditioning down there as well for the summer. And being in the basement will certainly help to some degree. Uh, it will stay cooler than the rest of the house does, and certainly the other shop does. Uh, however, humidity is still a problem. Uh, even though the um, temperature is lower, the humidity is still quite high. And so I do have to be careful about that and be concerned about that. So I, I'm certainly keeping that in mind as I build this and work on it, is trying to keep that temperature and humidity balance yeah, you know, balanced in such a way that I, I'm i comfortable working, I'm dry working, and the parts don't have problems as well because of the humidity. And another thing worth considering, too, that has only really been published about in scientific journals relatively recently, and say probably the last 15, 20 years, is carbon dioxide. Uh, so if you are in a small watchmaking space all by yourself, it's worth getting some air circulated, because uh, whether you realize it or not, you will be taking a cognitive hit just based on your own lungs polluting the air around you. As once CO2 levels start to get up over 400 parts per million, there is a measurable decline and that does start to happen. And having three people in a, a small room you can actually start to have a, a pretty significant cognitive decline within the span of an hour. It's striking, the numbers that have been published in, in this respect. Uh, so I do try and keep the door open uh, when I can and get some airflow going around. But I, again, too, with a, a watchmaking space, you want to keep dust to a minimum. Another thing worth trying to do as well is to, to keep a, a positive air pressure in your space so that there is not air necessarily flowing in through through open doors but but being pushed out and having fresh air coming in that is is filtered ideally getting into the clean room quality air uh, would take some significant investment i mean if you have the means by all means go for it uh, i for one do do not have the the means to to be able to pull that off uh, in any of the spaces i've occupied uh, but i i do try and at least have uh if there's a space that has a central air system to have the vents open and positioned in such a way that air is being blown out of the room rather than having air coming into the room for, from open doors. And an interesting tool in this respect uh, as well 
is uh, something I've picked up in just in the last year or so. And that's uh, an air quality monitor called the Aware. I got the, the second generation of that. And uh, it will actually give you very detailed metrics on things like the CO2 levels in your space, temperature, humidity, and then also toxins that may be floating around the air that you may not be aware of. Um, this is another area too that Daniels touches on is making sure that any sort of hazardous materials in your space are dealt with responsibly and if possible, having a, a dedicated room for working with anything that's going to give off any sort of hazardous gas or fumes or particulate matter and uh, having a well-ventilated space to, to do that sort of thing is as ideal. Yeah, there's certainly enough toxic substances that we work with in a shop on a regular basis that you need to be concerned about. Everything from obvious things like solvents, which are going to be a problem. But even in the case of, uh, let's say, my 3D printer, the resins that you're working with, uh, they do off-gas as you're working with them. And you need to keep them at a high enough temperature that they are going to um, to off-gas. And they can be a problem. So it is worthwhile making sure that you keep the quality of your air excellent and that you pay attention to that and make sure that you're not poisoning yourself. You don't want to start having problems, health problems, because of poor ventilation and, and poor hygiene when it comes to dealing with various chemicals. You wouldn't happen to be speaking from experience there, would you? Never. I, I've never had, never had problems with poisoning <laughs> myself accidentally. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore hand. <laughs>